One of the great joys and privilege uh, of a minister is to uh, bring God's word to a people who love God's word and who are eager to learn from God. And so this is a congregation where I don't have to work hard to convince you uh, how important it is to study God's word. And this is a congregation where I don't need to work hard to convince you why we need to listen to uh, this book uh, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Because we all share that love and, and that conviction, don't we? And so it's uh, such a pleasure and joy for me to minister among such a people. And, and I think I'll begin this new series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians just by noting some obvious features first. First, uh, Ephesians is actually one of the shorter books of the Bible. Uh, but as you know, uh, it is a book that is both theologically profound and utterly practical. Ephesians tells us great things about God, and it also tells us how to live every day wisely. And there are many things that we will learn from Ephesians in the weeks to come. And personally, at this point, two things interest me uh, greatly. Um, of course, there are more than two things in this book that we are going to learn from, but two things that interest me greatly at this point is, first, the fact that Paul had a very deep relationship with the Ephesian believers. And because of that, when we study Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we learn how a good pastor loves his church. And of course, a how a good pastor loves his church is an aspiration for me and for all pastors. And how a good pastor loves his church is also beneficial for you to know. What does it look like when a pastor loves his church well? So that's a, it's a very important uh, facet of this letter for me. Secondly, Ephesus was a large Roman colony in the first century, and it was a multicultural and diverse city, and it was a city that tolerated every kind of philosophy and religion except Christianity. And Paul's letter to them provides them the perspective and the tools to handle the cultural pressures around them. a diverse and multicultural place that tolerates every kind of philosophy and religion except Christianity. Does that sound like a place that you know? Our culture and our times bear a striking resemblance to the first century Ephesus. And so as we read and study this letter, we will find that this letter will equip us to not only understand the cultural pressures around us, but also to thrive in this culture. And so with that short introduction, I want to look at the first two verses. And first, uh, and note three important features of these two verses. First is that it is a letter from Paul. It is a letter from Paul. Now, when you and I write a letter today, we have a convention. And it's customary when we write a letter to put the name of the recipient first, 
and the name of the sender comes only at the very end. So it's customary for us to begin a letter by saying, dear so-and-so, and we end the letter by signing off, yours truly, so-and-so. So that's our custom. We put the name of the recipient first, and the name of the sender comes at the very end. Well, first century letters began with the sender's name, then came the recipient's name, and then came the greetings, as we see here. And so Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's the sender. And we know the sender, Paul, very well, don't we? After all, we have just wrapped up uh, our study in the book of Acts, and uh, much of Acts uh, involved and concerned Paul's life, his ministry, and his struggles. And we saw during our study of Acts that Paul, Paul was brought up in the strictest sect of Judaism, and he became a Pharisee. And Paul was a naturally brilliant person, and he applied his native brilliance to the study of God's Word. But you know, too, in order to really understand the meaning of Scripture, it actually takes more than natural brilliance. In order to truly and really understand God's Word, it takes more than mere intelligence. Now, Paul had intelligence in spades, so much so that he surpassed many of his peers and became the head of his class. But it's interesting that though he was naturally brilliant and intelligent, uh, his heart was not regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so studying the scriptures merely uh, with the use of his, his intelligence, but without the benefit of the illuminating grace of the Holy Spirit, Paul entirely missed the point of scriptures. You see, God in the scriptures promised not once, not twice, but repeatedly over and over that he will send his son, the Messiah, who will suffer and die to make atonement for the sins of his people. But when Jesus actually came according to the scriptures, when he suffered and died and rose from the dead according to the scriptures, Paul rejected Jesus. You see, he was a brilliant man. But studying the scriptures merely with his intelligence, he missed the center, the core, the heart of scriptures. And then Paul thought that he was serving God. But in reality, he became the servant of the devil. The devil, the scripture tells us, is the accuser of the brethren. When Paul accused the Christians of heresy, of immorality, and he persecuted, he imprisoned, and he wholeheartedly approved putting Christians to death. But Paul, as we read in verse 1, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, there is a widespread myth that says that a sinner 
on his own initiative, forsakes sin and chooses God to become a Christian. Well, that is clearly not what happened with Paul. You remember how Paul was on his way to Damascus, fuming with rage against Christ and his disciples. And Paul did not, on his own initiative, choose to become that which he hated with all his heart. Jesus came to Paul. Jesus came to Paul with a love that was deeper than Paul's rage. Jesus came to Paul with grace that was greater than Paul's sins. And so Jesus rescued Paul. And I think sometimes people forget that the gospel is a story, is a message that God rescues sinners, not that sinners save themselves. Jesus rescued Paul according to his sovereign and divine mercy and made him an apostle by the will of God. An apostle, um, now today we only use the word in, in, in religious context, but in the first century Greek, the word apostle meant someone who is sent with the authority and the right to represent the sender. So an apostle, I, I suppose our nearest uh, uh, equivalent would be an ambassador. An apostle comes to you carrying with him the full authority and the rights of the one who sent him. So that when an apostle speaks, you are hearing the very voice of the one who has sent the apostle. And it is a triumph of grace, isn't it, that God, that in Jesus, he took Paul, who was an avowed and dedicated opponent of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And in the triumph of grace, God made Paul to be a witness of Jesus Christ and an apostle of Jesus Christ, so that Paul spent the rest of his life speaking for Christ in his authority. And that grace, that undeserved grace, that rich grace became the, the immovable foundation of Paul's faith and life and ministry. So that's who the sender is, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And that brings us to the recipient. It is a letter to the Ephesians, a letter to the Ephesians. Notice verse 1, it says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Um, we've come across Ephesus and the Ephesians in a number of different places in the book of Acts. Uh, first, in Acts chapter 18, Paul uh, was passing through Ephesus, but he could only stay for a little while. And he promised them, if the Lord wills, I will come back to you. He said. And in Acts chapter 19, we see that God has in fact led Paul back to Ephesus, and, and Paul stayed in Ephesus for more than two years, teaching and proclaiming the gospel. And it was in Ephesus that where we saw that Paul's gospel proclamation was so fruitful 
that it bankrupted the idol makers' guild and the silversmiths. They were so angry that they caused a citywide riot. You remember that, don't you? And then in chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem knowing that he will be mistreated and arrested, that he will never uh, see his beloved uh, Ephesians again. So on his way to Jerusalem, Paul met together with the Ephesian elders in what we saw was a very heartfelt and moving meeting. All that is to say, from the book of Acts, we know that Paul had a very deep relationship with the Ephesians. And when in Acts chapter 20, Paul met with the Ephesian elders, this is what he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Notice what he says, what Paul told the elders. Pay careful attention to the flock of God. Care for the church. Watch over them. Nurture them and shepherd them. Guide them. Why would he say that? Except that he had a deep love for the Ephesian believers. And so when we look at Paul's many dealings with Ephesus and the Ephesian believers, we realize that Paul had a very deep and loving relationship with the Ephesian believers. And then, of course, you remember how the book of Acts ended. Acts chapter 21 ends with Paul awaiting Caesar's uh, judgment in Rome for two years. And it was during those two years that Paul wrote to the Ephesians because, you see, his love for them was such that even though he could not be there in person with them, he sent this letter so that they might be encouraged, so that they might be led unto maturity, so that he might supply for them the tools and the resources to live in a, in a way that that honors God in a way that uh, brings them joy. And with that in view, with that in mind, we have to ask the question, what does this loving pastor say to the Ephesians? Uh, In verse 1, he has two things to say. First, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus. That word saint, it's the Greek word hagias. And it's the same word that throughout the Bible is translated as holy or consecrated ones. So to call somebody a saint means that they are holy ones, that they are the consecrated ones. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the practice of the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman Catholic Church, certain people are elevated to the rank of a saint, and there is a very specific and involved step before somebody can be elevated to the rank of a saint. First, uh, you have to find out whether they have performed a miracle. That's the first qualification. And then... Uh, there is an official uh, function of the Roman Catholic Church called the devil's advocate. 
I'm not kidding here. It's an actual office of the Roman Catholic Church, the devil's advocate. And these are the people who are tasked to uh, go dig for the dirt, to make sure that if we elevate this person to the rank of a saint, that something doesn't come up later and cause an embarrassment to the church. And so in the Roman Catholic Church, when a person has performed a miracle and when the office of the devil's advocate clears that person from character flaws, then the special person is elevated to the rank of a saint. But you know, the Bible um, says something very different. Because in the Bible, hagias, it means primarily to be set apart. Set apart. And it is in that sense that we say that God is holy. He is set apart, exalted, unlike the creation. Sometimes we, are, we talk about God's holiness in terms of God having no sin. Now that is very true. But you do recognize that when we define God's holiness as not having sin, we are defining God's character, His eternal character, from the vantage point of our human experience. And not just from any human experience, but from the vantage point of the fallen human experience when we say that God is without sin. But God was holy in eternity. God was holy before there was sin, and God will be holy after, there is, after sin is eliminated. So we need to understand that the holiness does, yes, it does mean not having sin, but it actually has something more fundamental and deeper meaning of being set apart, being unique, being something, can I put it this way, being different. And it is in that sense we read in the Old Testament, for example, various objects and utensils in the temple called holy. In the scriptures, we find various places called holy, and we even find various days that are marked as holy days. And of course, you recognize it makes no sense to say that the utensils have no sin. It makes no sense to say that days have no sin. But when scripture calls them holy, it means that, that they were consecrated and set apart for God's use. So they have been brought out of common or profane use, but God has consecrated them for his own purposes. And Paul calls the Ephesian believers the saints in that sense. That is to say, Every Christian is a saint because every believer has been consecrated by the blood of Christ and set apart for God. You know, I know it's not our practice and it would sound and feel a little awkward, but I think time to time it might be interesting and perhaps uh, uh, edifying to call each other, hello, Saint Brian. Hello, St. Liam. <laughs> Only to remind ourselves the, the truth that every Christian 
has been consecrated by the blood of Jesus Christ and has been set apart for God by Christ. And so there is no Christian who is not a saint. And when a person is a saint, that person is a believer. But that's the biblical understanding of what it means to be a saint. That's what it means to be holy in the Bible. So, Paul calls the Ephesian believers to the saints. The saints. And it's remarkable. Because as we continue our study in Ephesians, you will see that they were far from perfect. And as we read this morning from Revelation chapter 2, Jesus tells them, but I have this against you. You see, they were not some extraordinary believers with an amazing track record, with faultless lives. But they were consecrated by the blood of Christ and set apart for God. You are saints. Secondly, in verse 1, he says, the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. By this, Paul means to say that they have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit rescued them out of idolatry by granting them faith. So as Paul will tell us in chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So the Spirit of God grants the gift of faith and regenerates the sinner's heart, makes the dead heart come alive, replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, replaces the heart that is bent against God and is running away from God with the heart that loves God, is able to respond to God. And the Holy Spirit gives both the heart and the gift of faith that the sinner might turn to Jesus through faith and repentance. And so just as Paul was made an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, so that he may bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ, so the Ephesians were made saints and set apart by faith in Christ by the will of God. So the sender, the recipients. The sender is the apostle. The recipients are the saints. Thirdly, and lastly, that brings us to the greetings. In verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so far, Paul follows the typical pattern of the first century Greek letter. Uh, it was customary in those days, as I mentioned earlier, that when you write a letter, you put the name of the sender first, then the name of the recipient, and then the greetings. And that's what we see here. But notice also that the, each element has been modified by the gospel. Each element has been transformed by the gospel. So the sender is the apostle of Christ one who was sent by Christ to speak on his behalf with his authority. The recipients are people that are set apart by Christ for God. And the greetings 
are not merely pleasant formalities, but a benediction that flows from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, grace. Paul says, grace to you and peace. So what does Paul mean by grace? Now, it's a very interesting and well-recognized feature of the Ephesians that roughly the first half of the uh, letter, the first half of Ephesians, is Paul's exposition of God's grace, which we have in Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, And that's really important. You see, Ephesus was a city that that tolerated every kind of philosophy and religion. And so the believers that lived in Ephesus, they were bombarded with the message every day and every night. They were bombarded with the message and the promise of good life here and in the future through the various city-sanctioned ways. You see, that's the pressure that they face. If you want to have a good life, if you want to be respectable, if you want to belong, if you want to be one of us, if you want to have a secure afterlife, these are the ways that we approve. These are the ways that we permit. Just choose one. It doesn't really matter as long as these are the ways that we have approved for you. And so one of the challenges that Christians face in a multicultural and diverse culture is is the exclusivity of our faith. By that I mean, how can Jesus be the only way? How can Jesus be the only way? And how arrogant are we to think that only our way is right? Now that's a pressure that we have to deal with when we live in a multicultural and diverse uh, place. How dare we say, given all these options, given all these claims, given all these traditions, given all these convictions, how dare we say that Jesus is the only way? How dare we say that we are right and everybody else is wrong? Well, the point is that it's not our way but it's God's way revealed to us. That's why we insist on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And that's what the Ephesians needed to remember. And that's where they needed to take a stand. And from Revelation, it seems as though they they learned that lesson well. They were immovable on the truth. We are not insisting upon the world our way. We are bearing witness and we are proclaiming God's way revealed to us. And so that's the difference. And God's way is Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we have nothing. And it is only in Christ we are blessed and we are complete. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, peace. 
roughly the first half of Ephesians is Paul's exposition on God's grace in Jesus Christ. And the second half of Ephesians is how the gospel gives us peace. And when Paul says peace, he has in his mind that rich concept of peace from Old Testament scriptures, which means to be whole, which means to live in harmony with God and with our neighbors. And what Paul is saying is that the gospel makes us whole, and the gospel equips us to live in harmony with God and with our neighbors. And so the various conflicts of our lives. You know, we are conflicted people, aren't we? We are conflicted in our own hearts. We struggle with sin in our own hearts. And we uh, struggle with the world around us. And we need to recognize that these struggles have theological roots. We cannot be whole and we cannot be in harmony with God and people around us unless, unless our lives are rooted in God's grace in Jesus Christ. You know, it's really interesting how today when people feel as though something is not right, something's going to miss, we quickly turn to gurus who promise better techniques. Um, they call them life hacks. Um, but it's all of one and the same. If you, find, if you feel like there's something wrong in your life, what you need is to find a guru, find somebody who can help you. Or we might turn to therapists who teach us to love ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a, a whole assortment of useful things that we can learn from other people, even from unbelievers. We can learn really amazing and useful things from other people. So that I'm not denying that. And I am not denying that therapies can be useful in some places. I'm not denying that either. But isn't it interesting? Our instinct as people in 21st century is when we feel like there's something wrong in our lives, our first instinct is to seek out gurus, to learn better techniques, or to find people who will tell us to love ourselves and accept ourselves. But Paul says that our wholeness comes from Christ and from Christ alone because that's God's way. He is saying that our peace, to be able to live in harmony with God and with the people around us, it's a profoundly theological issue. It is profoundly shaped by the gospel so that if you desire to live a whole life, not fragmented, not fractured, but whole, peaceful, harmonious life, it begins and it stands on the foundation of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. So loved ones, will you come along and dive deep into God's grace with me 
And we will pray that the Lord grant us wholeness in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your instructions and your word to us this morning. And we pray that you will lead us into a deeper understanding of your love for us in Jesus Christ. That we may understand and taste and embrace your grace. And that our toilsome lives, our hard-pressed lives may find peace and wholeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.